Hey, Magic Lantern listeners, there is no opening scene today, as this time around we are talking about our trip to Noir City, Austin, 2018, and there were just too many good scenes to choose from. Although if I had to pick one, I would say my favorite scene was me getting to eat all the treats and you not getting to have any since you're doing Whole30. You dirty dog. Wait, wait, wait. Can I do my best line, though? I've got a feeling I'm not going to be able to stop you. Okay, this is Gail Patrick in Quiet Please Murder. No. If you go back and look at previous opening scenes that we've done, clearly you have studied her work very closely. Or did it go more like, no. Are you ready to get going here? Yes, sir. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rowling. This time around, this is a special recounting of our trip to Noir City, Austin, 2018. We are at episode 76. And why don't you tell us a little bit about this year's theme? I've been looking forward to this all year. How about you? You know, and if there are regular listeners out there, they know as well, this is one of my favorite things all year long. There are a couple of big events we always look forward to. Old School Kung Fu Weekend and Noir City Austin. Those are the two big blocks that I put on my calendar that nothing else is allowed to happen in those times. I think that Eddie Muller and the Film Noir Foundation came up with a great program this year. The theme was Film Noir from A to B. We're going through those A pictures and then those quote-unquote B pictures that would fill out the double bill. Each one of them was a double feature. They paired a classy A with a trashy B, and the films they brought to the Austin version of the festival cover the years 1941 to 1951. This time around, they arranged them also to play in a sort of chronological order so you could watch a little of the evolution of the form of the genre, whatever you would like to refer to film noir as. Did you enjoy that particular aspect of it, getting to watch it unfold before your eyes? I did very much from those early days through the peak and beyond. And we got to see some amazing directors, people we talk about regularly like William Dieterle, Felix Feist. We also got to see the benefit of the bulk of these films in 35mm. There were restorations, preservations, a digital restoration as well. And of course, the highlight for me is always going to be Eddie Muller's introductions. Well, of course. That's the main reason we go to these things. And also to get to give him a big hug and a kiss this year. I think I'm probably not alone in this. I probably root for those B pictures a little bit more. This is a B picture household, for sure. While we're talking about it, why don't you outline what you think the difference would be for someone who's maybe not as well-versed in that era of filmmaking? How would you delineate the difference between the A picture and the B picture? I think we're looking at two big features, stars and production values. And really that comes down to money above all things. So you may not see your Loretta Youngs or your Claude Rains in the B pictures, but you're going to get your grubbier guys like Charles McGraw. You will see some A-listers in early breakout roles, though, so you will see names that you very definitely recognize that went on to have prominent careers in very early roles here. But you're right, Down and Dirty is typically how we like it, so we gravitate toward the Bs. But there were some great surprises in the A's this time around for me. 
I went into it especially excited because I'd only seen two of the 10 offerings, so I always look forward to that feeling that I'm going to be surprised. And that I will probably end up finding one of my new favorite things. Last year, that was cash on demand. So I always go in with high hopes. Well, how about we get to opening night? The festival opened on Friday with a single double feature in the evening, and that started with the A picture, I Wake Up Screaming from 1941, also known as Hotspot. And that was directed by H. Bruce Humberstone and stars Victor Mature, Betty Grable, Carol Landis, and two Lantern favorites, Laird Krieger and Elisha Cook Jr. In the film, a celebrity promoter is accused of murdering one of his clients, a young actress he discovered when she was waiting tables. I thought this was a great way to start. What did you think? Totally agreed. I think the casting was fantastic in this one. And I enjoyed seeing what I almost mistakenly think of as not even a noir. I tend to think of noirs really coming right after the war. But of course, that was not true. We find all sorts of examples, and I like having my eyes open to that. This felt like a bit of a hybrid. It clearly had a lot of noir underpinnings, but it also had a ton of touches from Humberstone's other career. This is the only noir he made. The only film even remotely like this. He usually did musicals like comedy. He was well acquainted with Betty Grable throughout their career as they worked together multiple times. And you can see a lot of those touches pop up here. In particular, lots of underscore, which I know you are not a big fan of. Oh my lord, they played Over the Rainbow about 50 million times. Did MGM just charge them a flat rate and so they decided to use it 100,000 times? It wasn't just somewhere over the rainbow, though, although that one was prominent and still impossible to get out of my head from that experience. It seemed as if there was a never-ending medley playing underneath the action throughout the entire film. In addition to that, his roots show through in all sorts of other places. There are lots of light moments, humorous tags at the end of scenes, the rare happy ending in the film, Dead Sister notwithstanding. But in addition to these lighter touches, there were also lots of expressionist touches, too. Shadows grates, smoke, the rough police interrogation with bright lights. If noir wasn't completely commonplace yet in 1941, where do you think Humberstone picked up these touches? Was he just plucking these from German Expressionism and other films like the Universal Monsters? Where was he picking up these ideas from? I'd like to think that he took one look at Laird Krieger and said, <laughs> this is how I've got to do this. I think it is a good use of what would later become those tropes, like you mentioned, the flashbacks, the angles, the hats. I really enjoyed, I found, at the end of that evening, those comedy moments. It seemed like an interesting way to kick off the series because I knew it was only going to get darker. Well, Eddie did specifically make the point in one of his intros this weekend about how noir encompasses a lot more than just darkness, how there are comedies and there are musical elements. It's not as narrow a range as most people try to make it in some cases. And to talk about those actors for just a moment, I've always been a fan of Betty Grable. I almost feel like I have to explain that because she's Betty Grable, but my mom loved her light movies. So I watched a ton of those as a kid, and that felt like a completely left field choice again to kick off the festival. One of those cases where a lot of these actors that we'll see throughout the festival were using this format to rehabilitate their image, perhaps, to stretch out a little bit in a new direction. Do you think that's what Victor Mature was thinking when he put those swim trunks on? 
I know what the studio was thinking when they made that scene. We have to get Betty Grable and Victor Mature in swimsuits in at least one scene, however we have to shoehorn this thing in. I think I'm the opposite of you on the Betty Grable spectrum. I was never a big fan. It's just really not in my wheelhouse, the stuff that she usually appears in. So it's a nice surprise to me to get reacquainted with her this way and realize what a solid citizen she is. She's super game and down to earth. It's easy to see why an entire generation of GIs fell in love with this girl. You know, I think I always liked her because she didn't strike me as a dope and she didn't play dopes. And I think that comes through in this film, though, really, Laird Krieger is the reason to see this. Is there anyone that you would less rather see sitting in the corner of your bedroom when you wake up? I wake up screaming as the title has to refer to the fact that that is immediately what you would want to do encountering that situation. He plays the smartest, creepiest creep ever that I can think of. He is so intelligent in this, and that's the worst of it, because he is calling the shots here to his own ends. Just a couple other touches that I liked about it. I like this Pygmalion intro that they do, because it gives us the opportunity to do one of our favorite things, which has come up for alternate titles with these that also include the word murder. So in this case, my fair murder. <laughs> That's a pretty darn good one. And also, in a neat little touch of serendipity, there's a library scene in it, which ties us immediately to our next film. And that won't be the last of those odd connections that you wouldn't notice if you're watching these films in a different order, separated by months. You know this is one of my favorite things. It's like the prize in the Cracker Jack box when you see these things pop up one after another after another. And so that B title was Quiet Please Murder. We didn't even have to make up the title for that one. It just comes ready to go. Exactly. But we could not have made up what unfolds in this. We've mentioned it before. So this was one of the ones that I had seen previously and was delighted to see it on the big screen. Well, this is one that Eddie told us about last year when we got to sit down and talk to him, and it sounded so intriguing, we just immediately went out and bought a gray market copy. But it was so fun to see it on the big screen. Quiet Please Murder is from 1942, directed by John Larkin, also written by John Larkin, which we will want to touch upon, with George Sanders, Gail Patrick, and Richard Denning. A book forger sells a fake book to a Nazi through a female agent. And the struggle to uncover who the forger is and get the book and keep the money results in a hostage situation in a public library. I think that was the big draw for us initially. It's kind of a bottle episode for the most part, as the action almost completely takes place in a library, which we love as an idea. I don't understand how this got made, because it is so kinky. The code police must have read this. Were they all so square that they didn't understand it? That's exactly what it is. You can sneak a lot of stuff by the production code people because it wouldn't even occur to a lot of them what is going on here. And what is going on is that George Sanders, being the perfect George Sanders, as our book forger, tells us repeatedly that he is into pain. George Sanders likes it rough in this particular film. So is this what we're talking about when we talk about the trashy B picture? Trashy not in terms of George Sanders, because he is as A as it gets, but in terms of talking about how much he wants to be hurt and how much everyone loves to be hurt as well, that's pretty trashy. And we mean that with a great deal of affection. 
Oh, heck yeah. I want to see some S&M and some murder boners all over the place. <laughs> His partner in crime here, Gail Patrick, is playing every possible end against the middle here. She is cross, double cross, triple cross. I can't even keep track of all the crosses. And I affectionately referred to her line reading in the beginning of the show, but she's doing it on purpose. This is not her being a bad actress. This is her being so obvious that a dope like Richard Denning can't figure it out, and frankly, he deserves what he gets. Really, there's no one to root for except the books in this one. This is probably the first appearance of a theme that I think I apologized to you for at least once, if not multiple times throughout the weekend. That's basically women having to deal with assholes who think they're charming. That just walk up to you, get in your face, start their line of patter. These were the heroes. And it's creepy and disgusting. It sure is. Though, I don't know if this occurred to you as well. Richard Denning in this looks so much like Matthew McConaughey, I got distracted by it. All I can ever see is him and the creature from the Black Lagoon. Good point. If this is what all the men were like, I would turn out like Gail Patrick too, playing every single one of them off against the other and hoping I was just the last person standing when the smoke clears. Getting to those connections here, another interesting callback to a previous episode, George Sanders towards the end talks about this idea that he wants to be caught, that people like him want to be caught, which made me think of our rope discussion. This is a different type of criminal. I stand by my assertion that serial killers in general do not want to be caught. They want to keep killing. This criminal, with his particular predilections, however, he wants to continue being punished. So that's how he's going to get that. Being caught is the thing that's going to administer that to him. So therefore, yes, in this case, he wants to be caught. And because he thinks everyone is like him, he claims that everyone wants to be caught. He just wants to see the world in his bruised and battered self-image, which... How much of that is John Larkin actually saying that he wants to see? All of this dialogue, all of this characterization had to come from somewhere, and I'm looking at you, John Larkin. One unexpected bit of fun that came out of this, you cracked the case as far as the location, I think. In his introduction, Eddie mentioned that it was odd that it was supposed to be set in California, however, there were exteriors that were shot with snow on the ground that they left in the film possibly just due to budgetary constraints or not caring that much, thinking people wouldn't notice, but I think you actually figured out what the deal is. Here's my opinion, and everybody go out and watch this immediately, then we can talk about it. They talk about K Street, that's a huge reference in this, and the second I hear K Street, wherever I am, I think Washington, D.C. There are other references to Baltimore and Boston and having that be kind of a corridor that you travel, which again makes me think East Coast and D.C., there is a great deal of very specific political intrigue happening, so I'm not sure if maybe they decided they had to keep it more vague. But to me, it screams DC. And there's an awful lot of references to air raids and shelters, and if there is any city on the East Coast where there will be snow on the ground where that is very important, that would have to be Washington, DC as well. So take that, Richard Denning. You're not the only super sleuth in the house. The last little bit of sleuthing that really isn't sleuthing, it was just so obvious but fun when we noticed it with these two pictures back to back. We had two Dracula references, and more interestingly, I don't know how this could have been a coincidence, but I don't know how it could not have been. Two characters in the films fashion hangman's nooses from a piece of rope that they have with them. It's such an odd detail and then pull it taut around their finger very specifically. These scenes were mirror images of one another. 
something that might not stand out, like you said, when you're watching these one at a time, but when you see it back to back, it really strikes you as an odd coincidence. So that was opening night. When we get to the end of opening night, how are you feeling at this point about the kickoff? It was really fun so far, and I knew that looking forward into the next four films, I had seen one, but not the rest of the three, and I was a bit on the fence about how it was going to go. I think I was right there in the same boat with you, as day two contained both the one I was most looking forward to and the one I suspected I would least enjoy. But in its favor, it starts out with a powerhouse, and the first film on the docket on day two was The Blue Dahlia. And that's from 1946, directed by George Marshall, and it stars Alan Ladd, Veronica Lake, and William Bendix. It's Raymond Chandler's first original screenplay, and it's about an ex-bomber pilot who is accused of murdering his unfaithful wife and then fighting to prove his innocence. It was produced by the great John Hausman, and I want to mention one other actress, and that's Doris Dowling as the unfaithful wife. She's in one of my favorite Andy Griffith episode, so I decided I wanted to give her a little spotlight. Which Andy Griffith episode is she in? Floyd the Gay Deceiver. Oh, that's right. Now, in contrast to I Wake Up Screaming, this has a great use of music. And also, even though I had seen this several times before, I carried a sense of deep sadness around death at the end of this. This, to me, is when you actually feel what has happened. Maybe that's because it starts with the death of his very young son and then continues through with the effect of war. We see that through William Bendix's character. He plays this so believably here. This is a person who is ready to punch and strike and ready to forget it in the next moment because his brain is gone. And that's in the very literal sense. He has a significant war wound to his head and carries a plate inside there now. And so music affects him very specifically. It drives him insane if it's too loud, too repetitive, the wrong frequency. If something causes that plate in his head to start to hum, there's almost no getting him off that track until he somehow just smashes whatever the source of his problem is. This was one of my favorites to view in this festival setting because it was probably one of my favorite examples of Eddie providing context and with his great introduction giving me something new to look for a new way to appreciate a film that I've seen a number of times. In particular, in this case, it is the saga of the writing of the screenplay by Raymond Chandler, who was basically, by the end of it, in a race to deliver pages to the set as George Marshall, during the filming, was catching up to him while Chandler was still polishing up those final scenes. For a necessary rewrite, the deal that Chandler struck was, okay, you deliver a case of booze to my house every day, and I will send a page at a time to the set via car that you provide me. And so essentially for the last half of the last act, Chandler was reputedly in the bag the whole time. And yet you see the results on screen, some of the sharpest, most Chandler-esque dialogue that you get in any of his work. I want to talk some more about that ending. We were having a chat in the lobby about it afterwards, and I think I'm the only person who isn't a fan of it. It feels like it goes on forever. It's very clear that it was supposed to go a different way, that Buzz, played by William Bendix, was supposed to have been the murderer. The Department of the Navy put the big kibosh on that, though, because they did not want 
post-World War II, a serviceman to be portrayed as a lunatic murderer, especially if it is caused by wounds he suffered in the war. So instead, there's a last-second turnaround, and the only guy left who hasn't been accused, Will Wright. Another Andy Griffith alum. Absolutely. He plays the house detective who was blackmailing the unfaithful wife. He ends up being the murderer. It's definitely wrapped up in fun twists, great dialogue, but it still felt like, God, could we have just edited some of this out and gotten straight to it? I'm okay with it because we end up with great Chandler moments like him saying, if I end up on a slab, bang, shot, dead. Okay, good point. And the detective walking out of the joint at the very end saying, well, that was an easy one. Which, if you compare it to something else of Chandler's like The Big Sleep, I guess it actually is. Did we ever learn Veronica Lake's character's name other than Mrs. Harwood? It's listed in IMDb. I never heard anybody refer to her. I don't know that I ever recall hearing anyone say it. We just have to go watch it again. Which I definitely will do because I was reminded seeing it in this format. What a great combination they are, Veronica Lake and Alan Ladd. It's no accident that they were together through a number of films, The Glass Key, This Gun for Hire. They make for an excellent team, and not just a great team, but a team of people that you can actually root for in a world full of characters like film noir is, where everyone is so shady and out for themselves and just down and dirty and duplicitous. They are like a beacon in the darkness when you see them together. They are genuine and honest and straightforward. They seem like actual honorable people. Well, don't get used to it. <laughs> okay. Because I'm not rooting for anybody in the next one. Well, the next one is technically a B, but it has some A-list star power in it, even though this was early on for them, so that's why it classifies as a more budget picture. They weren't the big names they would become at this point. And that's all due to producer Hal Wallace, and that's on I Walk Alone from 1947, directed by Byron Haskin with Burt Lancaster, Elizabeth Scott, Kirk Douglas, Wendell Corey, and Mark Lawrence. Frankie Madison, played by Burt Lancaster, leaves prison expecting a share from his ex-partner Kirk Douglas, but he's in for a big surprise because times have changed. In those 14 years, he was in the big house. Did Elizabeth Scott take acting lessons any time in the 14 years that he was away? You know, I liked her the most in this one of anything I've ever seen her in. You haven't seen Dead Reckoning, is that right? If I have, it's been a million years. Suffice it to say, hashtag not a fan. Were you asleep when she came on in Pulp? If I wasn't already asleep, I probably quickly went to sleep. But I liked her a lot more than I liked Burt Lancaster, whom I've <laughs> never liked. You have to go a fair piece in a film with Kirk Douglas in it to be the person who is the most overwrought. I love Kirk Douglas. He can overwrought it all up in the joint. But Burt Lancaster is nothing but a show-off and a haircut. Does that apply across the board for you? For the swimmer? Yes. For Sweet Smell of Success? Yes. Really? Yes. I'm probably prejudiced, though, by reading some stories about that production and about him in general, which I think was borne out by one of the pieces of introduction that Eddie Muller gave. Elizabeth Scott, rightly or wrongly, was accused of being a lesbian, and a lot of people then decided that they were never going to work with her again because of this big story and scandal, one of whom was Burt Lancaster. 
But the real star here for me was Wendell Corey. He stole this thing. Yep. Two films in a row, as a matter of fact, that he did that for us on this day. And I particularly appreciated seeing this one first because it was a totally different view of Wendell Corey. He was not the detective, not the straight guy that I'm used to. There was so much pathos going on in his performance. Otherwise, the huge highlight was the big scene when Burt Lancaster's character Frankie comes in deciding that this is when he's basically going to take over the business to get more than his fair share. And he gets a big lesson in Business 101 circa the 1940s. Yeah, you're right. I love that scene too. Pivotal scene. Probably my favorite as well. You can see that this bootlegger from the 20s, strong-arm guy from the 30s, has been swept away by the tides of time, not understanding how shell corporations work, how business has to be conducted legitimately. And I think that scene is a really interesting commentary on how film noir evolved from the gangster films of the 30s where everything was solved with a gun, and now you're beginning to see post-war how the gangsters have infiltrated legitimate business and have figured out how to run the game from the inside. He's simply just not equipped in the face of this. He does not have the tools. And unfortunately, it doesn't bring about his downfall. It affects Wendell Corey's character. So when we lost him, it was just a race to the finish for me. This was not my favorite. I think this latter section of day two was probably the difficult, quote-unquote, part of the whole program for you. And it started right here, I guess, with a slight disinterest maybe in this film and then being challenged by the next two in a row. The first of those two is The Accused from 1949, and this was directed by William Dieterle, one of our favorites. And it stars Loretta Young and Robert Cummings, who is a long, tall drink of vanilla soft serve and a plain wafer cone if I've ever seen one. I know Eddie, in his introduction, Mentioned having a similar problem with similar leading men like Dick Powell and Robert Cummings, but he outgrew it. I have not. (laughs) Yes, you have not. I can testify to that. In this particular film, Loretta Young is a psychology professor who fights to hide a murder that she committed in self-defense. But even if she gets away with the crime, will she be able to escape her conscience? Let's find out. I have to say, based on the cast, this is the one that I was least excited about going into. When you see Loretta Young and Robert Cummings at the top of the bill, it doesn't necessarily indicate right off the bat to me that this is going to be the down and dirty and grubby dark end of the street that I associate with film noir. It was definitely dark and grubby, but in a different way. And part of that comes from Douglas Dick, who we will see in Rope, which we discussed on the show a few episodes ago. After seeing him in this, I had so wished that John Dahl and Farley Granger had dumped him in a trunk instead. If you read descriptions of this now, no bones are made about the fact that Douglas Dick, who plays the student of Loretta Young's psychology professor character, tries to rape her. It would not have been referred to in the same way during that time period, but it's very clear now. And this circumstance was part of what was so difficult just personally for me. We know when we go into a series of noir screenings, we're going to see violence against women, most likely. Ill treatment of women, poor characterizations of women, but this was very up close and personal. We've got another layer to this story, which is Loretta Young's own history as well. She had been raped by Clark Gable. Not a lot of people know that, though we do know that she had his child. She first had to say that 
that child was adopted. That was the big story then. And it was only years later that she revealed that Clark Gable was, in fact, the child's father, as many people had really guessed at that point. And then even years after that, was finally able to say what really happened. And so you have to think about what she was going through in the filming of this as well, what she was feeling. It had to be incredibly traumatic. And this is one of the great things about seeing the films this way in this setting with Eddie Muller's introductions. It recontextualizes these films for me, gives me background information that helps me understand something in an entirely new way. And because of that, someone that I was just lukewarm about as a performer, I have come to have a considerable amount more respect for because I can't imagine what she was going through and still managed to put up a performance like this, which turned out to be a huge surprise for me. I say that this was my least anticipated going in. This was the biggest gap between how low my expectations were to start with and where we ended up and how much it delivered. I unfortunately got mired in how I was feeling and it was difficult, if not impossible, for me to get through that and judge it within its own context because there are some really negative messages also happening here. One of which is that professional women, especially those who are in that type of profession and deal with psychology, should really be institutionalized at the end of the day. The messages don't stop then. Every synopsis that I read of this now still have specific qualifiers for her, but for no one else. The prim professor, the beautiful professor. You don't see similar adjectives applied to Robert Cummings. And all of the characters in the film throughout are constantly telling her what she should feel and do. So it's problematic. Definitely now, I think also possibly then. But as you mentioned, her performance really does shine through. A little fun fact for you that wasn't revealed in Eddie Muller's introduction, Douglas Dick went on to become a psychologist. Your immediate feelings about it aside, we at least could come to the conclusion that it is a wonderfully crafted thriller. It is a very suspenseful picture. William Dieterle, this is an A picture for a good reason. Top line stars and a top line director who really knows what he's doing. And in retrospect now, after you've had a couple of days distance between you and it... Can you recognize the groundbreaking aspect of how frankly they treated this at the time and making her the subject of the film rather than just a victim? And a spoiler alert here, too. We don't get the sense in the end that she's going to be punished for this. We think she's going to be exonerated because all of the evidence is going to come out. And I think in spite of how I personally felt with some aspects and motivations of the film itself, I was incredibly tense throughout, so I still hope people check this out. And I know you mentioned that we loved Wendell Corey in this, but I do want to also give a special shout out to Sam Jaffe as the lab technician, as the forensic specialist. He was fantastic. Okay, I'm going to give one last shout out as well. Okay. Both the screenplay and the novel were written by women. Screenplay by Ketty Frings and novel by June Truesdale. Okay, what about this one's trashy B counterpart? That was... With a great title, The Underworld Story, from 1950, directed by Cyril Enfield, with Dan Durier, who I have to confess is probably not a Lantern favorite, Herbert Marshall, who is. I don't know if it's fair to characterize Dan Durier that way. He is definitely a Lantern favorite in the sense that he is our favorite petulant baby-faced weasel. Okay, good point. And that is a good designation. Gail Storm 
And also, Howard De Silva, whom we didn't really mention during the Blue Dahlia entry, is back in this one, and he also steals the joint right out from under them. Talk about another one with problematic aspects. I'll get to that in just a second. First, this one features a grubby big city newspaper man who comes to the small town, because he's forced to, decides to co-edit a newspaper, and gets embroiled in a murder trial. And now to the problematic feature of this, and I've been back and forth a lot on this one. I have no way to make this sound any better. They took an African-American character and had her be played by a white actress. And when you say that, they didn't just change it to a white role. They referred to her throughout the movie as a Negro. And worse, the N-word is used. She's saddled with some dialogue that refers to her ancestors' slave past. Uncomfortable doesn't begin to describe it. It's unfathomable watching it now to consider that anyone would make this decision to say, okay, we have a black character. Of course, it's going to be played by a white woman. It sounds so absurd on its face that I can't imagine how they made this decision. I have not talked to you about this yet. So feel free to give your opinion after I say this. Okay. If you decide hearing that, that you maybe don't want to check this out, I don't necessarily blame you. Well, you know how I feel about that stuff. Nothing is going to put me off. I don't believe in shying away from a thing because it's difficult. But I know that there are some people in the audience that might find that just so repellent an idea that they can't deal with it. There is plenty in the film to make it worthy of recommendation still. But if that aspect is troublesome, I understand. I just don't believe in turning away from that. It's better for me to examine these things rather than to turn a blind eye, ignore or just refuse to engage with. I completely understand what you're saying, and I think the unfortunate part of that is that there's so much to recommend this film, but that is a bridge too far, almost. Well, I have to say, out of the entire roster before we got there, this was the one that I was most looking forward to, because to me, it's the epitome of the down-and-dirty B-noir film for a lot of reasons. It turns out that it wasn't my favorite. It's that pleasant surprise when you go to see a festival of this sort that you run into things that you weren't expecting that turned out to be so fantastic they can't be denied. And it dropping down the list of what I enjoyed the most was not because of this aspect. It was just because the other films were that much better. Those things I have to recommend it, and they are numerous. I want to start first with Howard De Silva's performance. Mm. He is utterly fantastic. I can't think of another more venal, smiling character in recent memory that I want to see in his own film. And when Herbert Marshall's character asks, what are you? We get it. I found myself frequently thinking if this was to be made today or fairly contemporarily, who would be in this instead? And the most contemporary touchstone I could have for this particular character, I thought Ben Gazzara would knock this out of the park. I don't know that anyone could do it better than Howard De Silva, but if you were going to pick it up and make a neo-noir version of it, Ben Gazzara is the man for that. The only quibble I have with that is that I would never walk into a deal with Ben Gazzara and think <laughs> I was going to come out alive. That's true. At least De Silva for this generation or later generations would have that Maytag repairman candy shell that you think, eh, maybe I've got a chance with this guy, but no dice. I like the small town setting too, the small town New England. It definitely changes up the forces at work. 
Mm-hmm. You don't have that urban grittiness that you get with Chicago or Los Angeles or New York, where these are always set, it seems like. I think Dan Durier does a great job here as well in a leading role. And of course, Herbert Marshall working so hard to cover up the crime of his gross son is a terrific foil. And one last aside, Gail Storm is in one of my favorite Murder, She Wrote episodes as well. Well, a couple of things of note that I really enjoyed. It was the third Dracula reference of the festival, if you count the appearance of Edward Van Sloan, the original Van Helsing, as the minister at the funeral, and just the fact that there are no redeeming characters whatsoever in this thing. When I say it's the epitome of the trashy bee, I think that's what it boils down to. There is no one in this film that you can root for, even Dan Durier, who ends up on the side of working for justice. That's a complete coincidence. That's just how the money shook out this time. That's just how the chips fell. It has nothing to do with him wanting to be a hero or noble, a good person. None of that whatsoever. We do have the wrongly accused woman at the center, but she's completely swept up in the rest of the story, which is more about the comment on the newspaper game at this point. One last thing here, speaking of the newspaper game, our next mini coming up is sort of inspired by this film and other films like it. We are going to be covering a small sampling of our favorite newspaper noir in our next Patreon bonus episode. So that was the end of day two, and it seems like day two knocked you back on your heels a little bit. It did. I was really processing what I had seen, those last two choices. I was pretty tired, but I knew that the one I was the most looking forward to was coming up on the next day. Well, the next day, day three, the final day of the festival, was a home run all the way around for me, and it started off in such great fashion. Eddie Muller, unfortunately, had to leave the festival to go back to San Francisco because that day, Sunday, he was hosting a 60th anniversary screening of Vertigo with Kim Novak. Rough life being the czar of noir, I guess. But he left us in very capable hands with Alan K. Rohde, who is also associated with the Film Noir Foundation. He took over hosting duties and was fantastic. Alan has written a couple of great books, especially if you love film noir. He wrote a biography of one of our favorite tough guys, Charles McGraw, and he just recently published a new biography of Michael Curtiz, which made him the perfect person to introduce the opening film on day three. I want to say a quick thanks to Alan for taking over. He did such a wonderful job, and it was great meeting him as well. And that opening film on day three was The Unsuspected from 1947, and that was directed by Michael Curtiz, and it stars Claude Rains, Audrey Totter, another favorite of ours. Finally, I get one of my Dark City dames in here. And Constance Bennett, who was also fantastic. In the film, the secretary of an affably suave radio mystery host commits suicide by hanging herself from his chandelier after his wealthy niece disappears. Going into the festival, not having seen this before, this one had the most potential for me to hit all of my favorite things. I'm a huge Claude Rains fan. Audrey Totter is in there. We've got other great members of the supporting cast, including Herd Hatfield, Joan Caulfield, and I was expecting it to look great in true A-picture fashion. And going into this, I kept thinking, gee, this reminds me a lot of Laura. Little did I know that was no coincidence. Michael Curtiz, in making this, wanted to really make his own Laura. After watching it, I also realized he wanted to make his own Rebecca, his own Notorious, his own Gaslight. It had a lot of touches from other really great films in the genre, 
but he pulled all of these disparate threads together to make something very unique and very Michael Curtiz, I thought. I mean, it starts with a painting. You can't get more Laura than that. It is incredibly beautiful. The opening is so fantastic as we're scanning through the city, touching upon those people who are also the unsuspected. I loved the use of mirrors and other reflective surfaces. You have got to go see this. This one immediately leapt to the top of my list of must-purchases. Frequently, when we go to these festivals, as we are walking out the door, I will be on my phone ordering that copy to be shipped immediately to the house. This is one of those titles. You could just pick individual things about it that would be worth the price of admission alone. Claude Rains, all by himself. Audrey Totter and her acid tongue, all by herself. The crazy chase at the end, when Michael North has been thrown in a trunk on the back of a truck that is speeding through the city heading towards the dump to be trashed and set on fire. Just the radio mystery host angle. This was like fish in a barrel putting us in this audience. And you put that together with the visual artistry and you've got something amazing. This is what you get when you leave it to the pros. This is the epitome of A picture, the way that Underworld Story was the epitome of B. I want to get a hold of this film as soon as it comes in and I think I'm going to make a supercut of just Audrey Totter's lines and I'm going to play it every day. In our newspaper noir episode, we realized putting those films back to back. One of those recurring motifs is the shadowy man appearing in the doorway, and you know that's no good. This doubles down on that when the shadowy man appearing in the doorway is carrying a noose. And I learned a couple of other things. One thing that I learned from Alan K. Rohde during his introduction that might have made this even better for me, though I love it. It was written to be Orson Welles instead of Claude Rains, which just blows my mind. I don't know that I would have been able to stay in my seat had it been Orson Welles. However, having said that, and I'm right there with you, if you're going to go with a second choice, Claude Rains knocked it out of the park, being so warm and friendly and lovable and then stage managing all of these murders as he goes. Other handy things I picked up in terms of things we learn when films are back to back Pearl Handle Revolvers are apparently the weapon of choice for the high society murdering set. And maybe the greatest piece of wisdom I heard the entire weekend, only thieves in homegrown Casanovas catch the 715 train in the morning. One of the best lines I've ever heard. Also, you gotta know, if you're working with a radio host pro, it's possible that some of this stuff is gonna be recorded and used against you. So I got a proposition for you. Okay, what's that? Let's use our podcast somehow. To solve or commit murders. To create an alibi for ourselves okay. and let's go steal the Hope Diamond. Is the Hope Diamond a thing anymore? Is that cursed? <laughs> you're, I don't want to be you're, messing you're with You're mixing up some stories here. But maybe we'll get to that in our possibly planned In Search of bonus mini episode. I was just about to say, maybe I've conflated all my In Search of episodes. Well, what do we have next? What's the B on this program? Unfortunately, it was going to be a tough act to follow from the unsuspected. But if anybody can do it, it's going to be Charles McGraw and Felix Feist. And that was The Threat from 1949, directed by Felix Feist, with Michael O'Shea, Virginia Gray, and Charles McGraw. It took us eight films to finally get to a Charles McGraw entry. I was so looking forward to this one, too. This was probably the second most anticipated film on my list. It can't get more noir than this. Red Kluger escapes from Folsom Prison, bent on carrying out revenge against the DA and the cop who arrested him. 
We've got Michael O'Shea back again. He played the DA in the Underworld story, and he is back here as the cop. I do want to mention one person from the supporting cast who really stood out for me as well, and that was Don McGuire as the driver of the van who basically gets hijacked into this plot and ends up making the worst choice ever. I think there was such a collective groan when he handed over that gun. How do you trust Charles McGraw and do that? It's like looking into the face of a rattlesnake made of granite. You know that there's no way that that's going to go your way. This is after you've personally seen him kill a highway patrolman. This one is so short. It's here and then it's gone. 66 minute runtime or so, is that right? It is. And so we barely have time to get into it and it's practically over at that point. But it's a tense slam bang noir. I was really looking forward to this one, and I wasn't quite as in love with it as I thought that I might be going into it. I think I had the same reaction. This and The Underworld Story, the two films that I was most looking forward to going in, both got supplanted by really pleasant surprises. In this case, what I thought was going to be one of my favorites was a good Charles McGraw, but by the end we had gotten a great Charles McGraw, which we will get to. And there's such different Charles McGraws. In this case, he is rage personified. When I heard Alan K. Rohde describe him physically in the introduction to this film, and he said 165 pounds, that seems like such a normal average size for someone that I picture to be gargantuan. And I realized watching it that in some cases it's just the sheer force of his rage. And in other cases, the stone cold blankness that makes him feel so huge and monolithic in my mind. He's a ball of pent-up and released fury in this. McGraw's wife did make sure and tell Alan K. Rohde after they had come out of one of the screenings of McGraw's films one time, Charlie was not like that. We're going to get to see that other side of him in just a minute, but before that, we've got another huge amazing surprise. One of the great things about having these arranged chronologically, I thought, was that we could see where it started from, and all the permutations that film noir went through just to finally get back to its roots here at the very end. These last two films in particular to me are, according to Hoyle, film noir, down to their most basic building blocks. The A picture on that bill, the one that we're talking about first, is The Man Who Cheated Himself from 1950. This one was also directed by Felix E. Feist, and it stars Lee J. Cobb, Jane Wyatt, and a definite Lantern favorite, John Dahl. I love John Dahl so much. It's about a veteran homicide detective who has witnessed his socialite girlfriend kill her husband and then sees his inexperienced brother assigned to the case. This is the latest restoration by the Film Noir Foundation, and Alan Rohde was talking about the Blu-ray that's going to be coming out for this towards the end of the year. Sounds like it's going to be a great one. This is another day one must-purchase for me. This one and The Unsuspected are the absolute must-owns of the batch. I think another happy accident to this kind of festival going is that you discover new Lantern favorites, too. And that was Lisa Howard, who plays John Dahl's wife. This is another one of those instances where the background story and the rich, if short, tapestry of this person's life contributes so much more to watching them on screen. So many of the people involved in these and other films came to such bizarre or tragic ends after living through a set of bizarre circumstances. Lisa Howard 
wasn't necessarily a household name when it came to Hollywood, but after her acting career, it turns out that she was the first woman to have a major network news show. She was a liaison to Fidel Castro, and after having lived what seemed like probably several lifetimes, she was dead by suicide at age 39. And that was just in 1965, so just 15 years from this film to that. If you go down the rabbit hole of the biographies of the people who appeared in and who made these films, you will inevitably find so many things that add to your understanding or that you will just genuinely find so perplexing that you can't stop thinking about it. One of those things is reading about Lee Jacobs' justification for naming names during the blacklist. Though he put it so eloquently, it was the first time that I had a deeper understanding for that other side. He talked about his wife succumbing to the pressure, being institutionalized, and making a decision that he continued to regret and couldn't stop regretting in order to save his family. But setting that aside, as we have to do sometimes with these things, I think this is Lee J. Cobb at his very best. Absolutely. Although we never saw him as Willie Loman in Death of a Salesman, which I envy everyone who got to see that. True. Yeah, there are so many things to talk about, and we can't possibly get to all of them in these little capsule reviews of 10 different films in an hour episode. But all of these things that go into making film noir that we learn about through these fantastic introductions or delving deeper into the subject, how the genre crept in as the specter of world war loomed over everyone how it changed with post-war anxieties about returning to the home front. The blacklist is something that we just barely touched on now here in film number nine. The huge sea change in the studio system and how they had to divest themselves of all their theater holdings in the late 40s. So many things are at play, both in how these films were made, how they were perceived by the public, how well they did at the box office. For instance, The Unsuspected, which sounds like it is a home run on paper, was just a middling success which seems impossible when you look at who made it and how it turned out. But back to the man who cheated himself, this is definitely a worthwhile restoration. The Film Noir Foundation does not miss when they choose projects to put their money into. They are batting a thousand as far as that stuff goes. And in this film, we have Lee J. Cobb and John Dahl as brothers. You know I'm going to go for that sibling dynamic. You know this one's going to hit me right where I live. And I think it's really believable. So for the first time in my memory, I see Lee J. Cobb playing a character who is his own age. However, we all know Lee J. Cobb was born 52. So I believe that he's 52 <laughs> in this, even though he was really only 38. And John Dahl is essentially playing the straight man in this, the person setting out to discover the truth, all while Lee J. Cobb watches his reckoning come closer and closer and closer at the hands of his own brother. And Lee J. Cobb, who we are used to seeing a bit over the top, underplays things so beautifully here. And nothing demonstrates that and everything else that I love particularly about this film more than the scene when that reckoning finally comes and they are face to face with this. It comes to a point where Cobb knows that he is going to have to do something to his brother. And it's so beautifully underplayed that you almost don't even notice that first he puts his gun away before this confrontation happens. And he just has to knock him out. He has to buy time. And when he does this, you see so much conflict and pain in his face. One, for the situation that he just finds himself in. But two, for having to do this to his own blood. 
With such little motion, Cobb conveys how much suffering is going on, and it's a really brilliant touch. That's my favorite scene in the whole thing. The ending is a kicker, though, as well. He's in the courthouse, his femme fatale, Jane Wyatt. Jane Wyatt, who did a far better job than I was going to give her credit for going in. I thought she did fantastic. I was not expecting much of her, to be honest. She passes by him with a lawyer who is her new lover, ready to give this new guy the same speech she gave him. And he watches her as he's offering her a cigarette and a match. You could freeze frame that and I'd put it up on my wall. You know how we mentioned that we see motifs played over and over again when we put these movies back to back? This one was an absolute first for me, though, in that I've never seen this happen before, where the exact same footage was used in two films in one day. It's odd. It's a bit of a ballistics test. So we see the same bullet that killed somebody in a different film used in this one. So I guess there was some crossover between the unsuspected and the man who cheated himself? I should also mention that, like with a lot of these movies, I really loved seeing all the San Francisco locations. Even if in some cases they were just huge photographic plates that were blown up and they filmed John Dahl standing in front of them. They had a tiny budget for this, but they made it count. All of the San Francisco work was apparently shot in four or five days. Even with that, though, putting these two films in particular, The Threat and The Man Who Cheated Himself, back to back, I realized, as some people do, Felix Feist works better with a budget, it seems like. When he has more resources at his disposal, the end product is better. Some people, your Edgar G. Ulmers, for instance, it seems like a dearth of resources spurs them to greater creativity. It seems like Felix Feist works to the other end of the spectrum. The more he has to work with, the better it turns out. Well, I'm going to quote Blanche Devereaux here. How about you put Sir Laurence Olivier in Cannonball Run and see what he can do? <laughs> well, speaking of Cannonball Run, and you know it pains me to say this, but I feel like the A pictures are winning the day today. Hold that thought, sir. Because earlier with the threat, I said, it can't get more noir than this, and it's just about to. And that's with Roadblock from 1951, the film that closed this whole thing out. Directed by Harold Daniels with Charles McGraw and Joan Dixon. Charles McGraw plays Joe Peters, an honest L.A. insurance detective who becomes corrupt after falling in love with a sensual gold digger, Diane, played by Joan Dixon. This was everything I was waiting for in a straight-up noir. I knew I was excited for the Charles McGraw, and this blew my mind, starting with that great opening credit sequence. Those names come flying at our faces and are gone in just a second. And we've got another short one here. It comes in, does not overstay its welcome, and leaves us bereft. Also, funnily enough, it has a little bit of a Christmas element happening, so you could almost say it's a Christmas noir. Funny that you mentioned that. Two festivals in a row now, the final film on closing Sunday, at least had touches of a Christmas theme to them, the other one being Cash on Demand last year. But you are right. This is noir straight down the line. You could change Joe Peter's name to just another sucker on the vine. Charles McGraw, against type here, is a grade A certified chump. I loved seeing this other side of him, giving him an opportunity to do more, because when he says to Joan Dixon's character, I want you, I believe him. He makes it easy to believe him, that's for sure, and it falls directly into that noir archetype of good guy who makes all the wrong decisions for a bad dame. Although, does she turn out to be bad? What do you feel at the end 
because his crimes are motivated by the fact that he believes that she cannot live on his detective's salary, that she needs the good life to be able to keep her around. So that motivates his decision to get involved in a life of crime when she has turned the corner, apparently. Am I just a sucker for believing that she's turned that corner too? I don't know. She's been honest with him from the very start. And of course, it takes a huge jump to have the person tell you, I'm not going to stay with you. This is what I want. You don't want it. Get out of my face. But she has that reversal at Christmas, conveniently, and decides that she is ready to love him on his own terms. I think it's believable then, but he has still made the decision that he's going to go down this dark path. And by that point, when she says, I don't want this anymore, it's too late to get out of this deal. So she stays with him, and they've got to play it out to its inevitable conclusion. And when she walks away alone, I thought, I don't know that I would have believed she would have gotten through a year with him, two years, five years. We don't see what happens when they hit harder financial times, but maybe she would have risen to the challenge. That is a beautiful shot, by the way, that final shot of her walking away in the L.A. riverbed. Another one of those instances of perfect noir location work. I also like another of a pseudo-sibling relationship here, and that is with his trusted friend and partner, who is the one who is going to bring him in, the one who figures it out. His detective partner is Louis Jean Height, who is getting his biggest role of his career here, maybe. Most people probably are going to recognize him from the big sleep if they're film noir fans. But you're right, it's so touching the way that this final showdown plays out, him affording his partner the respect that he's earned over their career together. He's being a straight guy with McGraw, but he doesn't understand that McGraw is now too far around the bend to reciprocate that. This one gave me everything I wanted out of a finale. It was a perfect note to end on, didn't you think? Absolutely. A great capper to a great film journey. So now that all those noir chickens have come back to roost, what's your final accounting of the whole weekend? My favorite is still going to be The Unsuspected, followed very closely by Roadblock. It snuck up that far on the list. It did. And I really don't have a least favorite because even in something that I wasn't as compelled by, for example, I Walk Alone, there were still scenes in that that will live on in my memory. So there was no dud. I think I share the sentiment that The Unsuspected turned out to be my absolute favorite, but for me, The Man Who Cheated Himself is a very close second to that one. Day 3 turned out to be the real powerhouse lineup for me, and I was not necessarily expecting that. And like I said, I feel like the A's actually won out, which is a really difficult thing for me to say, because you know my favorites are the cheapies, the real down and dirty ones, where necessity is often the mother of invention in a lot of cases. But I reiterate... This is what you see sometimes when you leave it to the professionals. Even though in a lot of cases, those same professionals were crossing worlds from the A to the B picture often. So you ready for next year? I can't wait. I wish it was next week. I love this festival. This is definitely one of the highlights of the year. We cannot wait. One of these days, the crown jewel of our year is going to be going to the flagship festival in San Francisco and spending 10 whole days immersed in this instead of just a nice long weekend. But for now, yes, this will suffice. It was a fantastic time. And thanks for going with me. My pleasure. We should also specifically thank Eddie Muller, Alan K. Rohde, Darl Sparks, Anne Hawkins, and everyone at the Film Noir Foundation for all the work they do. We love classic film so much, and particularly we love film noir here. 
and the Film Noir Foundation does so much to make sure that it's going to be there for future generations to enjoy. If you would like to support their efforts in preserving, restoring, and disseminating these films, you can go to their website, filmnoirfoundation.org, to see how to donate or otherwise support their good work. Please go do that. We should also mention that you can catch Eddie hosting Noir Alley on TCM every Saturday at 11 p.m. Central Time, our time. Or if you watch on the website or the TCM app, you can see Eddie's introductions there. He packs a ton of insight and content into those brief introductions, so don't miss out on those. Another festival-related item before we get on to our regular housekeeping, I just wanted to say hello and thanks to Jane Sankner and her husband Jerry. Jane's our pal and has been a long-time listener of the show, and we finally got to meet them in person. It was so nice. They were absolutely delightful. If you run into us at any of these events, please come up and say hello. We always love to meet people and get to know the faces behind the names that we see online all the time. And in our regular housekeeping section here, we wanted to say thank you first and foremost to our most recent Patreon supporters, Sean Faust, Keith Rich, John Laubinger, Kyle Etzel, and Paul Dufresne over at Platter Playlist. If you are not checking out Paul's playlist, he makes some of the best mixes around. So go to Platter Playlists and check that out, if you're a music fan at all. If you would like to see what we have going on at the Patreon, including our upcoming episode about some of our favorite newspaper noir films, you can go to patreon.com slash magiclantern. All the info about how to get access to the bonus content is there. We appreciate any support. If you would just like to get in touch with us, you can reach us at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast in any of those venues. I did want to specifically mention this time around, we just recently started a new Facebook group, the Magic Lantern Podcast group. Our dear friend Travis Trudell helped us get that up and running, and it has been so much fun to be able to talk with everyone and interact a lot more than with the previous page we had before. So we encourage everyone to come on over, share photos, talk about your favorite films, start polls, do whatever you want to do. It is just our big cinema clubhouse. It gives me a chance to air some of those inevitable post-show regrets I have when I know I've forgotten to say something, mention something, ask some question. I get to do it all there. If you're not Facebook equipped, you can find us on Twitter at Lantern underscore cast. And I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has shared the show or given us feedback since last time. We want to say greetings in Tokyo to Daisuke Beppu, who made us a great video showing us his vintage rope paperback in response to our episode about my favorite Hitchcock film. He also left us a really nice iTunes review, and it's his birthday today when we're recording, so happy birthday. Other people to thank, we have Brian Sauer, Mike Vaughn, Keith Rich, Michael Cannon, Jeff Duncanson, Andy Wolverton, who sent us a very nice note about his reaction to In a Lonely Place. Thank you, Andy. We appreciate you sharing that with us so much. David Tanner, Rebecca Beagle, and Doug over at Good Times Great Movies. Thank you all very much for telling people about the show and contributing your feedback. We always look forward to hearing what everyone has to say. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, just about anywhere you find podcasts, you'll find us there. If you would like to leave us a rating or review via any of those services, we would certainly appreciate that. And I would like to thank iTunes user Yojebu for leaving us a very nice five-star review this time around as well. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at the website magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. <laughs>